and the 11FS offices in London for episode 110 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you When Backed, September actually, Barclays ends partnership with cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase and crypto exchange Binance announces new stablecoin initiative. All this and much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and as always, I am not alone. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Isabel Woodford, reporter at The Block. How are you doing, Isabel? Hello, very well. It's good to be pulled out of my lair of uh, working from home. Yes, the lair of all news that happens on The Block, <laughs> which of which there is much lately. It is. We're, we're on a roll, yeah. Exciting times. And well, uh, fitting then that the first story does come from your own publication, but I don't think this was one was yours. Um, but this is about BACT confirming a September launch date after getting a green light from regulators. So BACT, of course, uh, was originally scheduled for uh, December 2018 and then January 2019, but has now been cleared to launch. And this is, of course, uh, the Intercontinental Exchange's subsidiary. Um, they've acquired a New York State Trust charter through the uh, NYDFS. Uh, and the approval actually clears the way for it to begin offering two physically settled Bitcoin futures contracts, a daily and a monthly contract. So uh, this feels pretty, pretty significant as well. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic news. Obviously, we've had a lot of fun covering Bact. Uh, in many ways, they're a journalist dream because they send out multiple press releases. Yeah. You know, we're about to test, now we're testing. Yeah. Um, and there has been a lot of speculation about when exactly we would get the end product. So having this green light from regulators is probably the biggest step uh, that we have been waiting for. Uh, and hopefully, you know, some of the cynicism, rightfully so, that has been pushed to at Bact uh, can hopefully be put to rest. But they've raised an awful lot of money have backed and they have some uh, interesting backers. Of course, the Intercontinental Exchange, the owner of the, the New York Stock Exchange and uh, Starbucks and many others are behind this organization. So they've got some heavyweights there. Perhaps they can do something. And, and the big question has always been about getting that regulated, physically settled futures contract so that you can bring in the, uh, the institutions in a way that's completely different to the futures market we've seen historically. Yeah, so some of the hedge fund managers that I've spoken to are really excited about this. Um, a lot of people are saying this is what the market needs. Um, there's a couple of points that stood out to me. For example, one was we spoke to some of the big players at the banks. And obviously, banks have a slightly different system to small crypto hedge funds. And they were saying that they aren't anywhere near to getting the approval to get trading uh, physically delivered futures, albeit regulated. And so there might be a little bit of a lag here where we have backed up and running between when we have what we hope are really big institutions coming to the playing field. I think the word institutions can be misleading sometimes because there's really, 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 really big institutions. And then there's an institutional investor that may have 50 million to 100 million assets under management, or which is a big fund, a meaty fund. But it's it's not massive compared to some of the institution uh, institutional whales that are out there. And their requirements, as you say, are really quite different to uh, something on the larger side. But I don't know if, if you're hearing or, or observing the same as me in the market as well, though, that... There seems to be this theme of just sort of creeping people figuring it out, people figuring out the regulation side, increasing regulatory certainty, and things that had been around for a while that had been delayed and delayed and delayed just seem to be popping through to the surface ever so slightly. 
As in, you're saying that things are starting to get cleared more? Yeah, yeah. Well, so two things happening at once. One, you're seeing the regulations make more, uh, have more clarity uh, in the eyes of many. And then as a result, things that are really, really hard to do like this. I think I also saw a story about um, somebody's looking to do an IPO um, for an exchange that is both offering securities to retail through an IPO mechanism, but also you could use those as a utility on the exchange. It's little things like that, the reggae offering from Blockstack, all of this just feels different to where we were two years ago, say. Um, yeah, the regulators are starting to really get some um, praise, really, from the big players in, in the field. Uh, I think it's really a case that they're starting to feel each other out. The regulators are starting to get a good grasp of what they're playing with. And companies are starting to wise up as well. You know, we kind of give a little bit of... Uh, you know, hit hit, uh, pieces to regulators occasionally, and we love to hate them. But, you know, they also say these people, they have to abide by what everything else, everyone else is doing. And looks like firms are starting to do that properly and comply with what they're asking for. My observation of fintech has been the entrepreneurs that are willing to work with the regulators, but also educate them in the same time and and actually have that be a, a conversation rather than some adversarial sort of communication. It have been the most successful. Uh, and then when regulators have been uh, shown ways in which they could do things differently, they tend to be quite open-minded to that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the, the relationship of trust is, is always invaluable. And I think that is starting to come through. And it's always horrible when there's an asymmetry of yeah. knowledge there. And I think regulators are starting to feel more comfortable. Indeed. Um, the, the linked story here also comes from the block. Um, and this is about Coinbase custody, um, apparently receiving 200 to $400 million dollars per week uh, in new crypto deposits from institutions. Again, there's that word. Um, The Coinbase CEO, Brian Armstrong, has said that the exchange's custody unit has been receiving these amounts per week in deposits. Uh, Hours after, of course, they finalized the acquisition of their rival Zappos custody business for $55 million. Coinbase have been doing some really interesting things. Uh, The amounts of deposit they're attracting suggests that I think some of the institutional investors have been looking for things like custody. They've been looking for things like uh, physically settled uh, futures contracts and all of those things are starting to come to the market slowly but surely but of course Coinbase custody is quite different to what a, a bank would see as custody yeah I mean the custody or crypto custody uh, market is really hotting up now you know as you say we've got backed uh, we have Fidelity uh, and we have players like Coinbase who have been there for a little while um, and it really what it looks like in BitGo obviously what it looks like is it's going to be a competition of security and incentives and so Backed obviously have the ICE behind them, ICE um, and Coinbase aren't, you know, they're they're almost veterans in this in mm-hmm. this space, relative speaking. So they have that advantage of kind of first player. Uh, what will be interesting now is how they can differentiate themselves and keep their advantage ahead of you know the new players coming to the field. It's interesting. Uh, I was um, reminded of a quote from the then CEO of Blockbuster in 1998, who said. Uh, we're less concerned about things like Netflix than we are about uh, companies like Apple and Microsoft. Now, that statement wasn't incorrect about Apple, but it was incorrect about Netflix. And sometimes I think people understate the opportunity that a challenger could bring to the marketplace. Hmm. Yeah. 
Next story comes from Reuters, and this is about Barclays ending their partnership with cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, according to sources. Uh, they're no longer providing banking services to a major cryptocurrency exchange uh, Coinbase, um, ending a relationship that started in March last year as the exchange expanded in Europe. Um, so pretty interesting uh, story uh, here, uh, but actually it doesn't seem like Coinbase services have been affected in any way. They're still going to be able to offer everything they were offering before, is, is my understanding on this one. So um, this was really around uh, the ability for customers in the United Kingdom to use their bank account to make deposits uh, into the uh, Coinbase wallets that they have and, and held. Yeah, so this was really big news. Um, obviously, the UK is a big market for uh, Coinbase, uh, ever-growing. And, I mean, we, we don't know exactly what's happened with the relationship between Barclays and Coinbase, but something that it does speak to and one of the trends that it kind of raises again is something that the block reported on earlier this year, which is, you know, banking as a crypto company can still be quite a difficult affair. Um, you know, one of the quotes that a source said was you have to either go with a crappy bank or slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Now, that is getting better. And, you know, the fact that Barclays made this step into uh, banking Coinbase and others, mm -hmm. but they're big, big players. So Coinbase will be fine and Coinbase's clients will be fine. But it does, again, raise this idea of banking as a crypto company and what that really means. I think the banks are in a tremendously difficult position because on the one hand, you've got the regulators uh, kind of really going at and looking at their anti-money laundering controls outside of crypto. And you can see uh, you know, the press around some of the sizes of fines for not having gotten anti-money laundering correct. Then you've got uh, anti-money laundering meets crypto, uh, and the regulators really pushing on that as a hot-button issue. So the banks are sort of like, well, hang on, this anti-money laundering is a hot-button issue for the regulators. Crypto is a hot-button issue for the regulators around anti-money laundering. Where is our risk appetite for crypto? And, and really, the risk appetite is, is very, very limited. But the way in which you implement that risk appetite is, is where the challenge starts to hit, because uh, the way in which a bank might look at it quite simply is to de-risk the entire sector. And then that will be on different departments in the bank to go, well, what does that actually mean? Because if I am a crypto consultant uh, incorporated, I might not be able to get a bank account. But if I am um, Simon Taylor Consulting Limited, yeah, I'll probably get it, even though I, I consult in crypto or exactly. I may, might write software for it. So I think developing sensible risk policies that help you understand the difference between a consulting business and what is the order of business, especially for an established financial institution with a branch network, where you can't necessarily have the branch staff understanding all of these levels of detail around how the crypto industry works, it, it's much easier to have that one-size-fits-all solution, which is why you see the bigger organizations, I think, have been successful, because they have um, more... Uh, scope, more funding to be able to go have a direct conversation with banks at a higher level. But also when they sit across from the table from the bank, it's their risk team talking to the bank's risk team. It's their sales team talking to the bank's sales team. It's more of a conversation of equals. So how you can be inclusive within that is really interesting. What I saw in this story was actually, uh, I think, a gap between where Coinbase's ambitions were and where perhaps the risk appetite of a tier one bank might be. Coinbase has been adding uh, crypto assets to its uh, institutional offering for quite some time and growing that base and growing that offering. Whereas I think uh, it struck me that if you looked at their offering in the UK, it was quite limited compared to their offering in the US. Perhaps this is more them moving towards their commercial appetite than it is um, anything else. No, it's a really interesting point and you know coinbase don't sit still oh, yeah. and they are constantly trying to push um 
boundaries. So this could be a big clue into that. And perhaps, you know, they've, they've trialed the UK as its first uh, crypto card. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, Coinbase card, you know, the, the crypto credit debit card with Visa. They trialed that first in the UK. So it'd be interesting to see what they're, what they're planning behind the scenes here. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say whether this was... So Coinbase are now working with ClearBank, which is a, a, a bank in the United Kingdom that's API only. So there are no ClearBank branches, uh, but ClearBank would do a lot of the things that Coinbase would want from a Barclays, from an RBS or somebody like that. But they, they don't serve you or me and they don't serve businesses directly. They, they serve other banks primarily or fintech. Um, So I can't tell if this is Barclays exiting the deal and ClearBank um, picking it up or if it's ClearBank uh, winning it from under the nose of Barclays. There's just no way of knowing these things. Um, But it's it's interesting nonetheless because the UK is such a market for fintech um, that there is this opportunity for things to change um, and for new and exciting fintechs to offer things to to smaller organisations. Yeah, and if it is the latter, you know, as we've seen elsewhere in crypto, it will be an interesting race between the incumbents and the traditional big banks and these smaller challengers who are trying to play by regulatory rules, but also kind of pushing out, you know, pushing out and reaching out to these big brands and potentially, in this case, winning. Mm, indeed. Um, so this, the link story here was from Cointelegraph and Santander are denying reports of blocking Coinbase deposits in the UK, uh, as some online users have accused Santander of blocking those customers from depositing their fiat funds uh, to that exchange. Uh, again, I think there is a, a great deal of, of frustration there with people just trying to use their bank account and move money into uh, into their exchange, which both of which... Are, you know, uh, Coinbase is a uh, regulated e-money business in the United Kingdom. Uh, th- there should be no reason why they couldn't do that. But it, it's a question of, did, did the bank think there was some fraud going on there or something else? It's hard to say. So this might have been one of those stories that was played up a little bit too much from a, a rogue Reddit mm. user. So I had a conversation with Santander and, and called them up and, you know, mm. they were very transparent to their credit. And they said, you know, we we aren't blocking. Um, this, this isn't a, a ploy against Coinbase and it's absolutely not the case that they are targeted. Uh, what might happen is that sometimes a user, a specific user is under um, investigation but they aren't told or you know they might flag Coinbase as one of those uh, companies that just needs an additional layer yeah. of security. So it's not that they yeah, absolutely, and so it's not that they've been checked, but maybe you know there's a delay there that a particular user yeah. uh, was subject to. And and so what they're saying, at least on the record, is uh, this this absolutely wasn't wasn't a, a news story in the way that we thought it might be. Which you know, if you walk into a shop and your card doesn't work, you don't uh, think ah they're out to get me, and you yeah. just say oh it didn't work. Right. So there are these things that happen that I think we need to be mindful Definitely, of. That's a good yeah. point. All right. It's time for the ad read. And this episode is brought to you by R3, the enterprise software firm behind Corda. Corda is fast becoming the gold standard in enterprise blockchain technology because it's an out of the box blockchain platform built specifically for businesses that comes in two versions open source and enterprise. Both interoperable and compatible, you can get started on open source and easily migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. Uh, The Corda platform offers the best of both worlds and it's backed by a community of over 200 application builders and consumers. You can download Corda open source on GitHub today or visit r3.com to find out more. All right, on with the show. Next story again comes from the block. You guys are like 
dominating coverage lately. There might uh, have been a bias here in selecting this. There genuinely wasn't. This was just like, so we have an internal Slack channel where all of the news stories get posted and we, we, we scrape them in as well. And, and uh, this, this was just like what the editorial team uh, wanted to go with. I like this one um, for a number of reasons. This is about uh, e-commerce giant Rakuten uh, launching a crypto exchange that supports BTC, ETH, and BCH. Of course, the Amazon of Japan has publicly launched this. Um, and users can start spot trading in those three cryptocurrencies via a mobile app. Um, Android only at this stage. iOS version is planned for quote-unquote early September. Assets are held in a cold wallet to ensure safety, um, and private keys will be managed through uh, multi-sig. Um, and it keeps the customer's funds separate to its own funds. Hmm. We knew this was coming because there was registrations in April um, for Rakuten Bank customers. Uh, and But this is a real boost for crypto in Japan. And uh, I think when we want to see the future of fintech lately, we've been looking east. And this is a real interesting example because what, what stood out to me is imagine if this was Amazon. Like, we'd just be blown away. So this is the Amazon of Japan, but in Japan where the crypto regulations are in quite a different place to a lot of the rest of the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what this piece really tells us is let's not forget about our friends in the East. I mean, mm -hmm. we are very Wall Street centric, mm -hmm. uh, particularly at the block. Um, and we are looking now very seriously. You know, a lot of my sources are based in Asia and they are constantly telling us, look at what we are doing and take note. And so this is one of the, again, one of those things that just shows us they are, they are potentially ahead of the game and they are ahead of the Amazon. Um, and you know, maybe for Amazon US, this will be an interesting trial and something to kind of bounce off of and see how it goes before potentially looking into doing its own thing. But Rakuten, I think, is further down the line in a lot of ways uh, towards that Alibaba model where sure, yeah. um, they, they have Rakuten Bank and they're offering banking services in a way that Amazon hasn't. But Amazon has partnerships for lending and, and so much of what Amazon does is about growing that small business ecosystem. Whereas this feels like quite a, quite a different step. It feels more... Uh, engaging with consumers who want to hold crypto and crypto being something that has uh, in Japan its own specific uh, legislation for and a legislative framework. So uh, I think there is something that's quite powerful about this, but also quite unique to Japan, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the, the Japanese are very comfortable with crypto. You know, as you say, they were one of the first to have very clear legislation around it, uh, the license for virtual exchanges. And, and crypto isn't so much of this foreign odd entity that perhaps it is uh, for us in the West. So yeah, absolutely. It would be interesting if a JD.com did this, you know, somebody with a regional presence across Asia outside of China, because we know China has been quite restrictive around uh, uh, crypto, uh, fiat crypto especially, to avoid the risk of currency flight out of the country, which you know they're trying to prevent it now. And, and uh, you know, going into Hong Kong, and then going out to the rest of the world during the currency wars. So what happens if somebody like that uh, does it? What happened if a Grab did it? What happened if one of those uh, regional super apps got into it? I think there's going to be a lot to be learned from looking that way for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, next story comes from Coindesk. Uh, crypto exchange Binance announces their new stablecoin initiative. Uh, Project Venus is to develop cryptocurrencies and digital assets pegged to fiat currencies around the world. A localized stablecoin initiative will see the firm uh, use its existing infrastructure, such as Binance Chain, its international payment system, and to empower 
developed and developing countries to spur new currencies. Don't know what that means. Uh, Binance said it's seeking to create new partnerships with governments, enterprises, cryptocurrency and blockchain firms to assist in the effort. Uh, Binance jumping on the crypto um, stablecoin bandwagon here or something more going on? Because Binance has been growing at a feral rate of knots. Yeah, do you reckon they're all using the same PR firm to come up with these names? Yeah. Like Venus and Libra and Gemini. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this is one which I would, uh, you know, address with caution. Mm. We, you know, with Binance, they are an incredibly big and uh, powerful crypto firm. M- my instinct is let's just concentrate on what they're doing in the US now, which is incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, their regulated US launch. Um, our sources inside Binance say that we don't really, don't really know what this is going to be yet um as much as what, what they can tell us is what they're trying to do really is fill in the gaps from libra so we know that libra facebook's libra coin isn't going to be available in countries where crypto is banned so india china and uh-huh. because of the binance chain element they would be able to tap into those markets um potentially with what venus is so this might be kind of one of those um under the carpet uh niche uh, ideas and initiatives, uh, but it's very early stages. And yeah. Binance, if nothing else, seems to be one to watch and, and consistently ahead of the market. Uh, interesting that you, you bring up Libra and, of course, areas where it is it is banned. Um, there was a story this week about uh, Libra, uh, some of the US government and uh, folks visiting Switzerland to, to look into Libra specifically. Uh, there is definitely, I think, a, a whole suite of conversations that have kicked off off the back of it. feels a little bit like the genie's out of the bottle on um, crypto assets or uh, stable coins as a concept. And people are thinking about it and engaging it with it seriously in a way that perhaps they weren't before. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time my parents had a conversation with me and my aunties mm-hmm. about what I was doing and you know, <laughs> what I write about. So it was really exciting on a personal level, but absolutely <laughs> is kind of broken through that kind of jargon and sometimes exclusionary field that perhaps we inhabit and has invited people into the conversation. Yeah, well, this is what um, journalists always talk about as being in the public interest. It, it kind of crossed that chasm a little bit. But once it gets there, all kinds of things come with it in terms of regulations and scrutiny and, and things that you would expect. Um, Binance, of course, with their BNB coin and their, some of their other efforts have, have been remarkably successful. So I'm excited to see what happens next. Um, does it stand a chance against the likes of Facebook if they were to come against this? Where would you rate um, kind of Facebook's ability to do like something like this uh, more broadly? Yeah, I mean, Facebook is still obviously an absolute giant relative to Binance on a, on a global and outside of crypto, um, you know, level. Um, the other thing is, I think Facebook is going the regulated route and it is trying to be normal in that sense. Uh, and I think Binance is trying to do that on a smaller scale in the US. Um, but this Binance chain initiative is absolutely not what that is. Mm. And so I don't think really it's competing on, on, a, on a mass level, but yeah. perhaps tapping into where Facebook can't compete. Or mm. labor, where interesting. Compete. Um, going to where Facebook can't go. Uh, interesting one, which considering Libra was supposed to go where money couldn't go, that's uh, an interesting idea. Yeah, let's not forget they haven't launched anywhere yet. So yes. we will see. They're indeed. Indeed. Uh, So much more to come on this one, I'm sure. Uh, Next story comes from, you guessed it, The Block. Um, This is an SEC consent order in an ICO case suggests that uh, non-existent 
SAFT tokens uh, might actually be securities. Um, so it's been a busy old week at the SEC. Um, an emergency asset freeze against uh, ICO promoter Veritasium. Uh, and in that, they've raised a consent order in, in a failure to register case against Simply Vital Health. The SEC defines the simple agreement for future tokens, SAFTs, as securities, which had always been an interesting question because I think the SAFT was originally uh, promoted with the idea that uh, something would become a security but actually wasn't yet a security and, and it was future tokens uh, was implied. Um, so this could be, could be the sign that actually a lot of those SAFTs might not be uh, might not be as safe as they thought they were. Yeah, that would be absolutely devastating, you know, because some of the biggest fundraisers have been with SAFTs, um, which the whole novelty and appeal of them was that they had gone through this, you know, lawyers and all mm. the rest of it and had really come out as this novel idea of how to do ICOs in a regulated and, or semi-regulated way. Um, so this would be devastating. It would, and yet um, at the same time we've seen um, statements from various members of the SEC that uh, if you take something like Ethereum, they've they've looked at sufficient sufficiently decentralized and also uh, then applying the Howey test at a point in time as being an area whereby actually now you have a more mature network in which it's clear it's not clear that there's any one management team that that, that is uh, kind of performing work which quote unquote investors are benefiting or not from uh, so. You could argue that what SAFT was trying to do has sort of happened for Ethereum via another route. So it, I don't know that this implies that the SEC is necessarily still coming for your ICO, but there are definitely orders like this coming. And these feel to be almost like the low-hanging fruit and the precedent-setting cases for the SEC uh, that then starts to build some momentum. So uh, where this one ends uh, is, is hard to say, but do you think there's going to be more like this to come? I mean, yeah, as you say, it's hard to say. They'll have to do it on a case-by-case basis. When I was thinking of is obviously Polkadot, which is mm-hmm. one of the biggest SAFT um, issuers. Um, you know, I, I know their team well. I would be surprised if they were one of those that hadn't taken their due diligence very, very seriously. Um, what I think this might do is put people off the SAFT model. Um, one of our colleagues, Stephen Paley, who's a lawyer in the US, tweeted, is the SAFT dead as a funding model? And of the um, methodologically uh, rigorous uh, 102 votes, uh, 64% said yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, perhaps, uh, even though it's just anecdotal, perhaps this will put people off and, uh, you know... What's interesting is the problem that the SAFT was designed to solve, which is uh, it's very difficult to uh, find new ways of raising funds with this new technology wherein you've got new business models. Uh I think remains a problem, which is why you've seen Blockstack go for the Reg A and, and look at that route, which is why you've seen um, this new exchange go for the IPO route and, and try and, you know, people are trying to run the gauntlet anyway. Uh, and then you're seeing uh, other types of mechanisms start to emerge over time. And then on the other side of it, you've got the, the banking world where they're, they're saying, well, let's look less at securities and let's look more at the alternative asset classes, the, the harbors, the templums of the world, looking at things like real estate, loan origination, asset backed financing, saying, well, actually, maybe this is the area where financing is remarkably inefficient, financing is remarkably different. So we've almost got these these two sides of sort of saying, you know, we want the financial inclusion, we want the we want different ways of raising funds for entrepreneurs. And and then the third theme, I think, outside of the um, kind of the two there around uh, the the inclusion and the the asset backed financing and the banking is 
the world of VC has moved up into the world of private equity more and more with late stage follow on funding moving into IPOs. So could these three things come together in some way? Mm, and I think, I mean, really following on from that, people are watching as well the closely the security token uh, world um, there's a really interesting firm called Globacap here in the UK who are helping companies do something I mean it's obviously not tokens in the way, in the way that we've seen kind of token based companies do it but they're helping uh, firms issue uh, equity in a new way i.e. Uh, security tokens so that's an, kind of another interesting which if I, I don't know how many listeners have um, dealt with cap tables of companies and, and option schemes yeah. a lot of startups <laughs> may have dealt with them they're, they're very very challenging very very paper-based very very admin anything that can uh, reduce that headache i think is is welcome and i think from an investor's perspective if you are trying to buy into a real estate fund um you know the the reality is you have to be a massive investor to make it worthwhile or as private bankers they have to go collect so many smaller investors together and the admin overhead of that makes it remarkably costly it is incredible yeah and, and it's unbelievable the inefficiency that than we see in the cost of our everyday goods and services. So um, it's a problem worth solving for sure. The business case makes sense. So it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, next story comes from Coindesk.com. Uh, New York's Supreme Court denies Bitfinex's lack of jurisdiction claim. Pew, pew. Um, the New York State District Court has denied iFinex's motion to dismiss the New York Attorney General's lawsuit against the company. It has jurisdiction to rule over the case between the New York AG and iFinex, uh, the parent company of exchange Bitfinex. iFinex now needs to produce documents at the request of the New York AG, uh, and the New York AG can continue its investigation into the loss of $850 million held by a payments processor called Crypto Capital. Um, did you expect this one? Yeah, poor bit for next getting absolutely battered uh-huh. uh, in the old courthouses. Um, so yeah, this probably doesn't come as too much of a surprise. Uh, 90 days to turn over the documents and uh, they're actually appealing the decision. Uh, but do you think they have the resources at this point? Yes, yeah, so we've seen they spent, what was it, 500,000 mm-hmm. uh, in legal fees? I think yeah. that was the number that came out. Um, I mean, probably the, the biggest concern to them that I've been hearing is uh, reputational damage internally. So I've been hearing of a couple of employees, you know, very straight-laced kind of people starting to get nervous about what this says. And even if Bitfinex come out completely on top of this, it, just the association of having that in the midst of all of this uh, is, is is scary to some employees. When your risk people start to think it's a risk having you on their CV, Absolutely, yeah. then you've got a problem. Uh, yeah, so, that, you know, legal fees aside, there's also re- recruitment uh, yeah. and retention worries. I think going on here. Reputational risk is something that I think big tech is starting to wrestle with more and more and it becomes a real challenge and actually uh, I heard somebody who worked at a big tech say to me a couple of weeks ago um, that actually the internal scrutiny is worse than the external scrutiny in, in many cases. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, and and because you consider the types of people that would work there and, and what they want to see and what they do. So um, interesting to see that uh, a lot of these organizations have you know, really bright people who understand compliance at them trying to drag the organization in the right direction and if they lose that talent what does that mean for their ability to defend something like this yeah so something that kind of made me think of this was uh, bitfinex's uh, i guess subsidiary or spin out ethfinex mm-hmm. uh, recently rebranded and has completely detached itself away wow. from bitfinex uh, they've rebranded as oh the name escapes me i think it's defi 
I'd have to look it up, sorry. Yeah. But yeah, then they've rebranded. <laughs> Clearly really catchy because I can't remember. Oh, yeah, so damn catchy. <laughs> but basically the fundamental point there is an incredibly bright team of about eight people have flown flown the nest. Oh, wow. Uh, interesting one to watch. Um, sort of like RBS did with NatWest. It's like, yeah, <laughs> look at NatWest. Don't look at the RBS, man. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, Coindesk.com, head of Sixers Digital Asset Exchange, quits over a strategy disagreement. Ooh drama um the drum why is amazon hiring blockchain experts for its advertising division um let's i wonder if the guys at brave or unlock have have any ideas on that one that's um pure speculation on my part but interesting uh coindesk.com all crypto retirement accounts will be fined australian tax office um, so that's interesting that, but we have seen a global move from uh, tax authorities to start to close this as a tax loophole. Again, the regulators have just quietly all descended in the same place at the same time and the compliance seemed to be doing well and the not so, so compliant seemed to be uh, on borrowed time. Uh, the block Santander Bank using Ripple's X current solution for upcoming remittance service in Latin America. I believe that's the one that does not use XRP. Um, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Daniel B, aka CSU Wildcat, who works on decentralized identity at Microsoft and is ex Mozilla. It reads. My honest opinion on blockchains, they have only shown enough clear evidence to feasibly solve three things. One, hard money. Two, decentralized identity. Three, timestamps. Almost every other use case is mired in oracle, scale, or physics performance, uh, sorry, physics problems that range from hard to near impossible. Um, Let's unpack those three points. Um, it's kind of a lot going on here. This was this was a tweet I saw. It only had like 300 likes, but I liked it as a jumping off point because the word only shown enough clear evidence was really confusing because the three things he talks about are massive. Like the implications of having digital hard money is like totally game changing for the economy. <laughs> like that's all it's done. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's even... A uh, push in that in terms of adoption, you know, we're constantly saying when is real adoption, math adoption. Yeah. So I think maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I fully agree with that myself. Uh, well, it'd be interesting to see because Ray Dalio has, has um, sort of fled the signal that investors you know, from Bridgewater Capital, famous investor, that investors need to be considering less stocks and shares and considering more things like gold and silver. But for a younger generation, is Bitcoin the new gold and silver? Is it the new commodity? Don't know. I think the yeah. jury is out on that. I think I read uh, last year that 25% of affluent millennials in the UK, I think it was the survey, own a crypto of mm. some sort. And I think affluent was like a, a plus £100,000 yeah. income. So quite a niche but this, that's somebody who can take $500, £500 yeah. and, and go buy a little bit of crypto without losing money, which yeah. um, never invest money. You cannot afford to lose people. But if you can afford to lose it, then speculation yeah, is kind of fine. it's interesting that they are fleeing that way. Uh, decentralized identity. This one to me feels like a really, really hard problem, but also one where... Uh, De decentralization itself starts to come into its own. Uh, this idea that in that uh, I think Vitalik Buterin said some time ago that uh, data has moved from an asset to a liability. If you look at the experience, uh, the Equifax, sorry, hack, if you look at Sony, Target, uh, Capital One, you name it, having a lot of data has become a real problem. Uh, Facebook, 
uh, and Cambridge Analytica, having a lot of data is, is a hard thing. So maybe inverting the model is what you want, holding as little data as possible, but having the individual attest that that data is true about themselves and being able to ask questions about it just seems like a no-brainer, but getting the infrastructure there could be could be really hard and getting the adoption there could be really hard. Yeah, I think this is really, really exciting. Um, I've actually heard that MasterCard are focusing on this particular area. Yeah. So that could be interesting to see what the banks Shout doing. out to um, Dave Birch, who's been saying identity is the new money for at least a decade. Um, I think he may be the, the godfather of uh, the identity subject, although identity has been uh, one of those subjects where and a lot of countries have partially solved it. So we've seen Norway, um, we've seen uh, the Netherlands, we've seen Estonia, or, or China and India um, in different ways do the centralized top-down solution. Will we see something decentralized? And I think time stamping is, is this provenance idea that we agree that this thing happened at this time. It's one of those things, though, it's only as good as the digital world exists. And if we agree that this thing happened, how did we agree it and what were the observations that were made? So I still think time stamping has to be limited to this thing did happen at this time and it was entirely digital. This but, is the supply chain. Yeah, um, well, supply chain or like let's say we're entering in some um, contractual agreement that's fully digital. So we've done a DocuSign together and we've timestamped when that DocuSign has happened given these digital devices. So I think there is more that you can do to, to just focus on a, on a workflow, a, a contractual workflow or something along those lines. All righty. Um, before we let you go, um, producer Petrit had a great chat with Ivan Gowan, who's the CEO of Currency.com. Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Pat, and today I'm sitting down with Ivan Gowan. How are you doing, man? Hi, yeah, good, thanks. Did I pronounce that correctly? Uh, Ivan Gowan. Gowan, yeah. I actually had a friend whose second name was Gowan, so I should probably have done a little bit better than that. So uh, tell us about what you do and who you are. Uh, so I'm the CEO of a company called Currency.com, and Currency.com is the world's first regulated tokenized securities exchange. Wow, that's quite uh, that's quite something, isn't it? Congratulations! Thank uh, you. <laughs> do you listen to podcasts? I do listen to podcasts. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Mixergy podcast, which okay. is all about startup stories. Oh, interesting. And then uh, in my spare time, I do a little bit of exercise. So I really enjoy uh, the Ben Greenfield podcast. Cool. It's all about high performance, healthy yeah. living. Nice. Yeah. Motivated man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about any blockchain or crypto podcasts? Um, so I listened to the uh, London FinTech podcast. Okay. And uh, we had a collab with them. And, but not uh, FinTech Insider or Blockchain Insider? Not, not FinTech Insider, sadly. No, that hasn't made it onto my list. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> uh, so tell us a bit more about your background before we get into currency.com. Um, you know, your background was in uh, building tech for uh, a trade company, right? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> back in early 2000s, I, uh, I started as a developer working for IG um, and helped build their online trading platform. Uh, IG went from a 250 million pound valued company to a 3 billion pound company when I left. Uh, and I ran the technology stack there That's for awesome. many years. And awesome. uh, went through 40% compound growth for nine years in a row. Wow. Uh, ended up as a FTSE 250 listed company. Yeah, that's amazing. Global leader in CFDs. Amazing. So what did you kind of take from that area of the world into uh, tokenized securities? Why, why this uh, you know, realm of the world or the finance world? Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty natural uh, progression. Um, you know, we're, we're <clears throat> helping to expand the reach of, of cryptocurrencies 
to move between cryptos and traditional capital markets very mm. easily. So if you look at the markets that we allow people to trade through currency.com, um, you can trade you know, a thousand of the world's biggest traded instruments on our platform. So everything from uh, gold futures contracts, uh, major indices of the NASDAQ, the Dow, uh, the CAC 40 if you're in mm. France, or the FTSE 100 in the UK, the DAX in Germany, yeah. uh, through to <clears throat> some of the biggest household names in, in terms of Facebook and Amazon and Uber shares. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and we treat Bitcoin and Ethereum as, as kind of first class underlying currencies to be able to invest directly in those tokenized assets. Mm. So for us, you know, you can bring fiat into our exchange, you can bring Bitcoin into our exchange, uh, and you can use that to buy other shares mm. that have been tokenized on the blockchain. That's really interesting. Um, do you think that's kind of something we'll see more and more of having, uh, you know, markets or, or uh, trading websites where you can buy not only securities, but uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and the likes. We've seen it with, you know, eToro, but also Revolut, for example, when they allow people to buy crypto. Do you think that's going to be um, the, the next stage of this, where buying crypto on any kind of uh, trading instrument is going is to be a thing? So I, I think right now we're seeing this bigger trend of people who've been in a regulated environment mm. Uh, helping to expand the reach of crypto. Sure. Uh, and I think a lot of the early starters uh, had come from backgrounds that weren't very regulated. Mm, mm. Um, we weren't coming on them. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's people's legacy and, and a bit of their history. Um, our history as a newer entrant to this is, is coming more from the traditional capital markets. Mm. Um, and we're really excited to be able to take instruments and put them on the blockchain and make those accessible to crypto holders yeah. who are maybe a bit more isolated and can't invest sure. in, in reliable underlying markets. Mm. And, and I think, you know, people have had experiences with uh, smaller coins that have been listed in mm. ICOs <laughs> and we know the shape of that graph, right? Yeah. And, you know, that can be exciting, uh, but it's pretty unpredictable. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes you can have unpredictability in, in big markets too, right? We've all seen uh, with the, the stuff going on around uh, anti-competitiveness and, mm. and privacy, affecting some of the world's biggest technology company yeah. stocks this week, mm. uh, some of them dropping 5%, right? Yeah, so that's I mean, a lot of people really... market cap being wiped out right there. A, a lot of people really um, um, underestimate the, the volatility of, of traditional markets as well. I mean, um, you talk about, uh, you know, spread betting or sports trading or crypto and stuff that are like more volatile um, uh, places to trade, so to speak. And people get kind of scared of them. Um, but... You know, traditional markets can have those big dips as well. I mean, Sainsbury's dropped about 10% at some point in 2019. I know Coca-Cola had like an 8% drop in a day. I mean, yeah. you're talking about uh, Coca-Cola being like a two plus billion pound uh, or dollar company, which is a massive drop in terms of capital. So is, is it more of a, an educational piece that we'll see in the future that, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and all these other currencies are volatile, but maybe not as volatile as they're kind of painted out to be? Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the volatility of Bitcoin over time, um, it's not as high as people think. Mm. I think if you take the snapshot periods of when it's had a crash, yeah. you know, and, and you take those in isolation, then the volatility is extremely high. But if you look at the risk-weighted returns of investing in Bitcoin over a five-year term, mm. it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and it will actually 
improve the, the risk rate of returns of almost any portfolio it's put into. Mm. Um, and that's simply because it keeps going up in the longer term trend. Mm. You know, and, and so it look, it, it's easy to paint a picture of, of huge risk, really high volatility uh, on a short term basis, but on a long term basis, it's, it's not as bad as it's sometimes painted in the media. Yeah, I mean, people can pick and choose timeframes to suit either narrative, can't they? But um, I think there is certainly that, that um, perception that it is, it is maybe more volatile than it, than it actually is. But you mentioned regulation earlier and, and you being kind of a new entrant, kind of coming from the capital market side of things. Has that been easier from a reg standpoint? Have you had conversations with regulators? And if you have, what have they kind of been like? Yeah, so um, we've been in uh, a process with the Gibraltar regulators for a while. Uh, we met with them last week and had a really good conversation. And for us, it's a, it's a very open dialogue. Uh, it's very clear to them that we're coming from a world where this is all very normal. And, and so, you know, when we're talking through what is our process for onboarding clients, what's our process for having multiple bank accounts to, to de-risk our counterparty risk, where are we getting liquidity from, where are we routing clients' orders to in order to provide them what they're buying. Um, you know, all of those conversations are, are very normal conversations for us that we have very well articulated processes around mm. and, and existing working practices around. And, and so, I, you know, generally our reception from regulators has been very warm and, and you know, they, they sort of, they want to welcome some mature businesses that they know operate well and mm. are used to operating in the way that they expect companies to operate. Um, so we, we've had a very warm reception from, from the government and the regulators mm. in Gibraltar and, uh, and they're very keen for, I guess, companies that want to operate well to be in their jurisdiction. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's kind because of a, I think so much of the liquidity in the market is from from the kind of OG crypto exchanges that might not be as adherent to kind of traditional regulation. So I think the more kind of quote unquote real players that um, have adhered to you know tighter regs worldwide, um, it, it's going to probably be better for this space in, in the long term. But um, you know, tokenized securities really. Uh, hot topic at the moment and this is kind of yes. like your your specialty I guess so what, what do you exceed what what do you expect to see from regulators in this space do you think there's going to be um, do, are, are people going to look at um, some of these STOs and kind of wonder how they um, fit into existing reg buckets or do you think there's going to be a, a change from from regulators so I, I think um, <clears throat> It's, it's obviously really complicated to mm. fit what is a fairly new product mm. into existing legislation. And that legislation is trying to do that. very <laughs> embedded in the big financial markets yeah. that are based in, in London, in Paris, in Switzerland, uh, in Singapore, in mm. Japan, uh, in the US. And, and so it's taking a while for governments to get their head around the classification issues, mm, mm. the areas where something that you can tokenize doesn't have a direct corollary, right? If you look at the traditional ways of, of what these uh, securities represent, mm. it's generally uh, bonds or equity. Yeah. And equity pays out a dividend and it's, yeah. it's an entitlement to future earnings of a company. And with tokenizing securities, you can come up with different business models that are a bit more innovative, uh, some of which could be a, a model, a, a mirror of that classic approach. Uh, but some of which could entitle you to other, other forms of value. Mm. Um, I think the other big issue that regulators are struggling with a little bit is, you know, who are the registrars of underlying ownership mm. um, and how do they 
ensure that the people who own this thing are identified and known people uh, and the transfer of those assets from one person to another is done in a way where there's some oversight. Um, so I think those are the big remaining areas that are, are quite problematic. Mm. Um, what do you think could be some of the solutions that um, kind of identity ver verification of either, of either end of the ownership scale? Um, what do you think people like yourselves will, will uh, kind of strive to do to make that easier for regulators to see? So I, I think the emerging uh, developments around uh, some ERC-20 uh, compatible standards are, mm. are going to emerge. And I think it's very likely we're going to end up with uh, a concept around whitelisted wallets uh, where people can identify themselves with known uh, trusted people to do custody of, of mm. the underlying security for what that token entitles you to. Yeah. And the transfer from uh, one trusted wallet to another will be facilitated in a way that can be overseen and, and a bit of governance around it. Mm. And I think that's a, a very likely trend that's going to happen. Um, we are uh, very interested in what's happening in that space. Mm. Uh, all of our tokenized securities are ERC-20 compatible tokens and they're stored on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And by default, when you buy a security through our, our platform, we'll store that for you, but you can withdraw it to your own private wallet mm. if you want to. Um, and then you can return it back into our exchange to, to settle that for either going back into, into crypto or going back into fiat. Interesting, interesting. And um, so a lot of people don't really get why tokenizing securities or tokens in general are a, are a good idea. So can you talk to me from a, like a market perspective, what some of the advantages of having these tokens instead of kind of like the traditional language um, and maybe inefficient paper-based model that we currently have in, in kind of, um, you know, stock exchanges and traditional carbon, uh, capital markets? Yeah. So I think... The area that we're most excited about that we've, we've managed to bridge a gap across is allowing people who are crypto holders, who are long-term crypto believers, to move very easily from crypto to traditional markets. Mm. And, and I think that can be coming out of crypto into cash. It can be coming out of crypto into uh, an Amazon share that's doing well at the moment. Mm. Um, and being able to move your money very easily between these different markets is the thing that we're facilitating. Mm. And, you know, if, if, if you want to avoid some of the higher risk, smaller coins and, and put your money into a diverse basket of, of assets, mm. you can do that under a single platform. And yeah. I think that's the big appeal. Yeah. And, and so we've got the fiat to crypto on ramps. We've got crypto to fiat off-ramps, um, and, and then, you know, you've got a, a broad range of assets that you can invest in, and, you know, when, when you're looking at hedges against inflation, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin is one, gold is another, um, you know, having a, a broad range of assets you can invest in, I think, is, is really exciting, and, and not having to go via fiat, via payments to another account, you know, in a different brokerage, you know, and then come all the way back, you know, via multiple hops and, and normally multiple days. Yeah. Uh, you know, being able to do all of that under one umbrella, I think is really exciting. Yeah. So uh, for, for you guys, it's not so much the um, kind of like the actual liquidity it, it might increase or provide for uh, those traditional um, stocks, but, uh, but more so the kind of interoperability between the crypto pairings and the, uh, the traditional underlying uh, pairings. But uh, I think our, our CEO, uh, David Austin, says that um, 
you know, as crazy as the, the last bull market in the crypto market was, uh, the crash may have actually built in some loss aversion for a lot of, you know, uh, Generation X and millennials um, in terms of investing in the actual stock market. I think uh, people like um, Free Trade and, um, and other apps that are allowing people to kind of buy these stocks and shares in a frictionless manner, they've really benefited from, um, you know, people buying crypto and then kind of learning about it seeing the crash but then still being interested in that kind of uh, I want to make my money work for me so I think yes. that's kind of an, another angle you guys are coming from right you, you've seen this big crash and now you're hoping that um, people who have been through that are still interested in kind of building their wealth in the future yeah I think that's another really important part and you know being able to offer people bonds for instance uh, where they're paying a four percent uh, return on your mm. cash you know, and, and when you compare that to your alternatives of a quarter of 1% in the bank, you know, that, that's a fairly low risk mm. investment that, that pays a reasonable return. Yeah. Um, I think the other interesting area to touch upon is the ability to buy, you know, fractional investments in a mm. share, which is also mm. interesting. And, and so in terms of democratizing the investment landscape and making it available to a wider audience, if you can go in and buy a tenth of a share, yeah. that, that reduces your entry point quite significantly. Yeah. Especially if you're a new investor, I think, you know, Netflix, for example, is trading at what, 300 plus dollars? Like almost every household in the UK and the US has Netflix. And, and usually when people first start investing, they invest in what they know and what they like and what they use. Yes. Um, so if you're looking at the likes of, you know, Netflix, Spotify, Twitter, that most people use, and would maybe like to put some money into, they're going to be very expensive. So that fractional part, I think, from the um, from kind of a new new user point of view, is it's another barrier that, that's lowered, right? Absolutely, and and you know we're seeing some really exciting uh, technology-driven companies list this year. Uh, Uber's obviously just gone through its IPO. Mm. Um, you know, and Uber itself is an extremely disruptive company that has has taken a very aggressive stance at expansion. Uh, somewhat ignoring some of the local regulation. Um, and, and so it's been a bit of a controversial stock and, mm. and you know, how that will play out, what its future growth looks like you know, when it's already fairly dominant mm. in lots of markets. But it, it's a household name that we've all used. Yeah. You know, and, and every generation now has the Uber app and it's super convenient. I've arrived here in Amsterdam, I get out of the airport, I jump in an Uber. Yeah. You know, and I don't need to speak the local language, I just need to know the destination, here's my mm. hotel. So, you know, that, that sort of convenience powered by technology is, is something that the younger generation have, have grown up with, mm. as you say, you know. And that convenience by technology is kind of what angle that you guys are looking at, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're really pleased to have launched a, a very, very capable mobile, mobile app in the last mm. month. And uh, the, the response from our audience has been amazing, you know, really excited about it. Uh, How many users do you guys five, have? Five you star reviews. If you don't mind me asking. So we, we launched in private beta on the 15th of January um, and we invited in a small number of influential people within the blockchain and, and crypto world uh, and used those as a kind of a VIP invite. Um, and our waiting list grew phenomenally to 150,000 people wow. in the first month. It's amazing. So, I mean, you know, it was just ridiculous. And we were quite <laughs> pleased that we had a, a bit of a wall there. Please, scared? You know, it's like, <laughs> this will give us a little bit of time to, to scale up our back office onboarding processes and address some of the feedback that we got from our, our yeah. early users. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're, our users now are, are in the thousands and, and growing rapidly. And uh, same with our volumes. 
yes. Awesome. Exciting time. So last couple of questions from me. Um, what are you excited about most in this space in the next, say, five years or so in the blockchain, crypto and DLT space? Yeah, so I think over the last two years, we've seen the narrative around Bitcoin change mm. dramatically. And I think if we all think back to the narrative in, in October 2017 that was starting to come out, people are getting excited about the CME futures contracts. You know, suddenly you've got this broader traditional financial markets that are able to get involved. I think we've seen uh, some senior players at some of the big investment banks change their tone a bit about blockchain and, and cryptocurrency uh, being very disparaging and then suddenly, you know, revealing quite large investigative operations going on in the blockchain world. And as well as the investment banks, some uh, big tech players and some big banks themselves, right? Absolutely. You know, and, <laughs> and I think, you know, if you look at what's going on with PSD2, you look at what's going on with, with companies like Facebook and Amazon and, yeah. and Apple and their aspirations in, in the banking world and, and individuals' finances. Uh, obviously, Revolut is a, is a big player in, in retail uh, finances and giving you insights and giving you valuable tools. So, you know, I, I think we're going through a, a period where crypto is, is establishing itself as a, a very meaningful place for people to, to store wealth and, and its broader adoption now is, is inevitable. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, that there are challenges that are faced by, uh, by people behind a lot of these, these projects of scalability and uh, costs and, and some of those things are proving barriers to really wide adoption. Mm. Uh, but we saw with the crypto kiddies taking down Ethereum, you know, these are problems that are there that are now being addressed very aggressively. Mm. And I think if you fast forward in five years time, you know, the technology will mature really uh, immeasurably. Mm. Uh, and we'll look back and we'll say, well, look, you know, here was, here was loads of innovation around decentralization, uh, around a lack of a need for a central body to govern uh, big decision making. Um, and now the technology has moved further forward and, mm. and can be doing this at scale, solving many problems that historically would have been very difficult to do. Mm. Awesome. Uh, Evan, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, pleasure. Yeah, so we're on, uh, we're on Instagram, uh, we're on Twitter and we're on Telegram. So uh, if you look up Currency.com, you'll find us and, and you'll be able to find out about all our latest, uh, latest releases and, and the stuff we're getting involved in. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much to Petra and to Ivan, recorded back at Money 2020. We, uh, we're rolling out the classics here. Um, that wraps up another new show. Just to remind you all, uh, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We also create truly digital propositions, working with banks, big techs, and all kinds of people who want to get the most out of uh, tokens and uh, different kinds of financing, and really making those things real in the eyes of their clients and their internal stakeholders. Want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday? Well, the subscribe button is right there. And if you're already subscribed, please go ahead and throw us a review. Alrighty, uh, Isabel, if people want to find out more about you or what's happening at The Block, where do they go? Um, so we are theblockcrypto.com and my Twitter, I think, is I underscore Woodford, uh, innovative as ever. Uh, it, 
you just broke the mold with that one, didn't you? <laughs> Absolutely crazy. <laughs> you can find me at SY Taylor or you can email me Simon at 11FS.com. A uh, big thank you as always to our production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra and Hannah. Of course, Alex, our superstar editor who has to work extra hard because I was struggling some this week. Nice one, Alex. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now. <laughs>